Hello, welcome to How to Get Into Law School, a Seven Sage podcast. Join us weekly to walk through the entire law school admissions process from application to orientation. Welcome back to the Seven Sage Admissions podcast, How to Get Into Law School. In this episode, we're going to be discussing character and fitness statements. I'm Jake, and joining me again are Brigitte and Aaron. And how are we all doing today? Doing great. Good. I, w- I was just trying to buy a minivan on the internet. That's the most millennial dad thing that I've ever <laughs> said, I think. <laughs> oh, man. Buying cars with small children is, I don't know, Aaron, like for, for our audience who are 22 years old and don't understand that aspect of life, how would you summarize it? It's exciting. You're paranoid that you're, if you're getting the right vehicle for your kids, if it's going to be safe enough, if it's going to have the feature, you know, the DVD player that they need. The stakes are high, man. Like we right now we're driving my grandfather's old Toyota Camry and I got these three boys crammed in the back seat together and it's like 10 minutes is the limit you know we're totally stuck and everyone says I'm not going to be the person who gets a minivan until that second child arrives and then they go wait a second I can't go anywhere <laughs> oh yeah. man so I, I feel you God bless hopefully recording this podcast represents a, a welcome reprieve from the insanity of that process it's like vacation yeah do you have a minivan? Oh, proudly. Yes. <laughs> Toy- Toyota Sienna. Highly recommend. That's, that's what I'm trying it. to get. That's what I'm trying uh, to get. They'll, okay, they'll so just give you a Honda Odyssey, but you can't get a Sienna anywhere. Yeah. Brigitte, what are you guys riding around in? Or are, you, are the minivan days done? Uh, well, one, they're done. And two, I never capitulated. And, and, and proudly so. <laughs> Anytime someone told me they were buying a minivan, I was like, no, don't do it. <laughs> As a parent, you have to retain some level of hip and cool or you will lose your mind. And that was that was a bridge too far for me personally, but maybe I'm not, you know, maybe I wasn't fooling anyone. My bridge is music. And so I feel like my kids, hopefully when they hit 25, will be seen by their peers as hip. Right now, no, no. But, you know, <laughs> we're, play, we're playing the long game here, right? With all the classic rock stations and what have you. But we digress. We digress. So today's episode has the prospect of being both informative and perhaps titillating because with character and fitness issues, ultimately, we're talking about have you ever gotten in trouble and you need to disclose these things on your your law school application. But hey, Brigitte, as the actual lawyer in our virtual room here, what are these character and fitness questions? Why do law schools ask them on the application? And ultimately, why do state bars care about these questions? That's a pretty big question there, Jake. But let me let me get started unpacking that. Yeah. <laughs> take, okay. take it away. Take it away. So, I mean, I always think of, of the questions in, in a couple different categories. There's the, you know, what happened at college kind of category, which is behavioral or academic issues, whether, you know, beer in the dorm, candle in the dorm, pretty minor, or cheating, more major. So there's all those behavioral and academic category. And then there's the, did the law get involved? You know, was there a police officer involved? So that could also be rather minor, you know, a ticket or a speeding ticket, which is even more than a parking ticket. And then on up from there, you know, violence, fraud, et cetera. So there's there's a huge range of items that can be discussed roughly in those two big buckets. Why do law schools ask this? In part because law schools do want to have some measure of character and try to find folks who generally abide by the law and follow rules and et cetera, et cetera. Another reason they do so is because the bar does ask for those same, does an investigation at the time that you're admitted to the bar to see what's in your criminal background, if anything. And the thinking is it kind of needs to match. What you said was your history in your bar, in your law school application needs to match what the bar finds. And that can be a real problem. And 
the law school doesn't want to have you go through an entire legal education, take up a spot in their school for someone who's never going to pass the bar. So that, yeah, that in, that in, in, in part is, is what, what motivates this. Yeah. And, and you can think of it almost the way I've always described it to students is that you can think of the state bar as being a bit like a union or a guild where they want to have some sort of quality control on the incoming members of their association. And given the nature of the legal profession, where as lawyers, you have you're advocating for your clients, for them to keep their house, for them to stay out of jail, for them to, you know, keep their their wealth and, and what have you, they want to make sure that you, the royal you, are a reasonably upstanding and moral citizen. And that can be reflected in whether or not you've gotten in trouble in the past. So, you know, Brigitte, you went over this a little bit, but for those for our listening audience out there, there tend to be two main questions that schools will ask. And there's the legal question and there's the academic question. Now, the legal question can stretch from, I think, ev what everyone would assume would be a problem. So any felonies or misdemeanors that you've had, whether you were uh, arrested, accused, actually tried and convicted, all the way down potentially to minor incidents. So parking tickets, speeding tickets, et cetera. And then that's one category. The other category are any academic issues. So again, we, we have the biggies like, were you ever suspended? Were you ever expelled? Were you ever accused of something really serious like plagiarism or harassment all the way down to I once had a candle in my dorm and my RA wrote me up for it. Now, we're going to get into some variations, though, because, you know, that's those are two pretty broad umbrellas. And so, Brigitte, can you tell us some of the variations that, that you've seen with schools over the years as far as what their questions include versus what they tell you explicitly to exclude on these these disclosures? Yeah, I think to a certain extent, it depends on the school and maybe even the state. There might be some state laws that inform the extent of the information that's being sought, right? So some schools, I don't know if anyone wants parking tickets anymore, but some schools specifically include speeding tickets, whereas some specifically exclude speeding tickets, unless it was reckless driving. So there's like, you really have to look at the details of the prompt of the particular school and then answer that particular question. Some schools, I think, I think in California, there's this move that, you know, once a person is done with the criminal justice system, it shouldn't continue to hang over their head. There's at least some movement there. I don't know how far we've gotten. So if it's been expunged or you don't have to talk about it anymore, other schools and other states specifically require you to include even expunged items. Part of that might be an equity thing, right? Because who tends to be able to take the extra steps to expunge the record. It's folks with money. So that, I think that kind of factors into it too. So you do have to read it really carefully. Don't, oh, I mean, we'll get into this later. If it says, don't tell us what's been expunged, don't tell them what's been expunged. But if they say, you know, including expunged, you got to do that. In terms of school, things have changed a little. And I wonder if you know about this, Jake, or you, Aaron, have seen this. It seems like some schools are moving away from one plagiarism event goes on your record for eternity, right? A lot of them are now saying you've done one thing. If you do nothing else while you're here, that goes off your record. Have you heard that scenario? Yeah. And also the variations of, and, and here's where we move into the gray areas, right? So you were kind of accused, but there was never a hearing. There's nothing on your record. And you've checked with your undergraduate institution. Is there a record? And they say, no, there is no record. Should you disclose that? Things of that nature. 
As far as what I'm seeing from school questions on actual applications, I'm not sure if I've seen any school say, and I don't know if you were suggesting this really, Brigitte, but like, hey, you get one freebie as long as it wasn't anything too serious. It seems more like either they say, tell us everything or tell us everything unless it's a matter that was expunged or sealed, in which case you don't need to disclose those matters. Oh, yeah, Jake, to be clear, I, when I said schools, I meant I meant undergrads. Some undergrad institutions are saying one. Of, yeah. So not law schools. No. However, and to be sure, most law schools do not say if it do not require there to have been an action. Right. So that's where people try to say, but but nothing happened. I was I was only written up. It wasn't I wasn't actually penalized. Well, that that's not what they're asking. So you have to really look at the question. They're typically asking, have you ever been you know charged or whatever university version there is of charge? So you do need to read it carefully and answer the question. But we also want to, you know, help people here a little bit and say, just because you have a character and fitness issue doesn't mean you have a character and fitness problem. And that's a real important thing that I think we're going to get to. Oh, actually, hey, let, let's talk about that now. The mentally, and, and I kind of discussed this a little bit when, when I was going over the two main categories of questions. There's the criminal question, there's the academic question, and that within the criminal question, there are the biggies that I think everyone can recognize, oh man, that's probably going to be a problem when I apply to law school. So not to make jest of anything, but I don't know, multi-million dollar tax embezzlement. You were the head of a Ponzi scheme and have been tried and convicted by, you know, the local district court in your part of the country. I think most people would look at that and say, yeah, heading a Ponzi scheme, that sounds pretty bad. You should probably disclose that. But now let's move down to criminal issues such as you were cited by the local police for having an open alcohol container at a football tailgate when you were 19 years old and a sophomore in college, right? So you can think of both of these categories, the criminal and the academic categories is then having three substrata, which is there are the minor issues, there are the serious issues, and then there are the potentially disqualifying issues. So Aaron, as someone who's worked with folks in disclosing these matters, what are some of the minor issues that you've tended to to run into over the years? What are what are some of our greatest hits there? I was just thinking about a guy who was repeatedly cited for illegal window tinting in his personal vehicle. <laughs> I mean, that could be serious. Were they blackout windows? I suspect that they were. Yes. Oh, no. And there, and oh, there were no. three. There were three offenses. But I think that the maybe it becomes a serious offense if you're like sort of serially refusing to take action. But but. <laughs> oh, for sure. For sure, guys. I mean, oh, yeah, that the, the pattern is the problem. Sometimes the actual act is the problem. One of them is enough. Other times it's not it's not the one, but it's like this guy's not getting the message, whether it's four DUIs or even even probably for, you know, beer on campus or something like that, because you're not listening and you're not willing to follow the rules. So, yeah, a pattern is a big problem. So here here, I think, is what makes it minor is the way that you frame your window tinting problem. So the actual explanation, I believe, was that he had been given this car by like a family member or he had purchased it used or something like that. The windows were already tinted, and he got all these citations in a short period of time before he could go get it fixed, which he then did. And so he explains that. As long as you explain that in a way that makes sense and doesn't sort of suggest that something else is going on, that's fine. And then it, and then it remains a minor issue. Yeah, because it was really just one act. So that's fine. That, that is a little bit different. Right. It's not like he bought four cars with tinted windows. He wasn't doing anything for Fast and Furious purposes. As far as I know. Although this guy had a lot, there was a lot going on with this fellow. So, you know, I had a guy once he, he was working on political campaigns in Colorado and and he got, 
you know, a, a sequence of, they, I don't think any of them were reckless driving, but they were pretty significant speeding tickets. And he wrote a very straightforward addendum explaining that like his, <laughs> you know, it, he felt very bad about this. Nothing had happened since he was under a lot of pressure at that time. You know, the the way that he had described it was totally plausible. Nothing else in his application suggests that he was a person of, of sort of a problematic character. And so that, I think, also became a minor issue. But all of these things are sort of on the line. And I think it's really important, particularly with cases of academic dishonesty or something that's going to present as academic dishonesty, to think about how you're presenting that issue. Because that's one of the things that are like, it's on the line between minor and serious. It maybe even could be disqualifying if there's a pattern. We And we have to work with students to help them figure out how to describe the incident in a way that's like immediately comprehensible because it's often pretty complex and that reduces it to that minor category. I'm just thinking like these days... Maybe people are more anxious because of, you know, chat, GPT and all that stuff. But like I worked with like two people this year who had inadvertently self-plagiarized, you know, but like one of them had just accidentally submitted the same paper that he had written for a, a previous assignment for some upcoming assignment. And the, the professor sort of freaked out, you know, and then the dean stepped in and said, this is not an issue, you know, please give this kid a break, you know, but it was on the record. All of it needed to be explained. You know, and it's the kind of thing people are really worried about. But as long as you do explain it, then you, you again, you reduce it to the level of a minor offense. Yeah, because it, it also depends on, yeah, how you describe it and the tone that you or the words that you use as well. And does it match the facts, right? So, for example, there are the times you feel really bad for the students where maybe the professor ran it through some kind of system and it looked like a few too many words were similar to some published, you know, story. That's a little, that can be kind of borderline because, you know, who knows? I don't know. It, it's a, that's a hard one because it's kind of minor, but yet it's still plagiarism. So it is more serious. But if you can put that in context, and then you have to talk about what were the consequences of that, right? If it was a zero in the class, you had to retake. Okay, great. Put it out there. The, the admissions committee will, will be the judge of how serious that is. But there are other ones where I remember one where you know, the guy wrote whatever it was that he, he said why he was written up for plagiarism, but he was kind of playing it off as being minor. And yet he had been suspended for a year and a half. So we were kind of like, I don't think so. This was back when I was at UVA. We're like, I don't think this doesn't match for us. You don't get suspended from that school for a year and a half or something minor. So we knew it was a bigger deal. And so, yeah, we had to, that kind of go, went to the other end. Well, so in, let's take a quick moment to recap. So because we've we've been talking about the variation between minor issues and serious issues. So just to make sure that we're assuaging any fears out there, isolated incidents that are easily explained where no one was hurt, you're apologetic, you take responsibility, etc., are probably going to be minor issues. So these would include basic speeding tickets. You were going 80 and a 65, for example. Minor issues regarding the academy. So for example, Aaron brought up... The the self-plagiarism where it was clearly a mistake. Or I was working with a client recently who he clearly mistakenly turned in, rather than the final copy of his paper, he turned in his notes. And not everything in his notes was properly cited because they're notes. They're not meant for the actual final paper, right? And this was dismissed really quickly, where it probably didn't even have to go to an academic board because, again, clearly they were notes. Issues of that nature are also, for those of you who are attending, some students are going to, are attending undergraduate institutions with far stricter student codes of ethics than other schools. So, for example, there are some things that you're going to get in trouble for as a student at a Christian school 
that you may not at a big state school. And we don't need to dive into said issues, but the imagination, you know, can run wild, obviously. You're not going to get in trouble for isolated issues of those kinds of natures. But as we've been discussing, one of those issues, two of those issues is not problematic. Now let's move into those more serious categories. The serious category can be continual minor issues. So it's not one traffic ticket, it's not, or one speeding ticket or two speeding tickets, it's 10. And they're all spread out. So it wasn't five years ago, they're recent. Or it's the minor issue taken to the nth degree. So it's one speeding ticket, but it's going 50 in a school zone with lights flashing and the crossing guard holding out the stop sign. That's a bit more serious than a basic issue. Anything else that we would add to that serious category? Serious, but not yet disqualifying. We're not at disqualifying yet, we're getting there we're getting there so what else would be in serious i think violence is serious and could be disqualifying depending on what it is the context around it but violence is going to always at least be serious even a single incidence of violence there are you know there's the academic dishonesty stuff like we've been talking about which are you know these byzantine misunderstandings but then there's also actual academic dishonesty you know you really have plagiarized you were caught exactly i think stealing is another one a shoplifting comes to mind right because and and, the, and there it's going to be really contextual how serious it is or whether it's disqualifying and you know if it's the kid who one time was caught shoplifting at the age of 13 with a bunch of friends or at the age of 10 or whatever it is that's going to be very different from i remember this one file that i read that you know it was at age 20 and you know and all of a sudden they're stealing i'm not even going to say what it is because i don't want to to get back to the person but the facts they were just like what are you doing you're too oh and this person didn't show up to the court so that was a problem so that mm. was that that made it disqualifying yep. because not only are you doing something that you really sh are old enough to know not to do right and then you're flat you're kind of thumbing your nose at the law not the best look. Yeah. And, and on that note, too, Brigitte, you, you touched on this. and I think we've touched on this a little bit, but just to say it explicitly, another issue regarding seriousness may be the timing of matters as far as how proximate to the present is this issue. So, for example, you brought up shoplifting when you're 10 years old and now you're 22, 23 and applying to law school. That's one issue. But shoplifting two weeks ago is another or the issue of violence. Getting in a fight in the dorms is never a great idea. But if that was as a freshman, and, and it's now five years since, and it's clear since then you've been a good and upstanding citizen, that's different than an issue of violence last semester, and you're a graduating senior. That's more proximate, and you may still be going through the disciplinary process for that issue. So it may end up being just a matter that's taken care of in your university's office of housing or residence life or what have you. It may not be. It may be more serious. So, you know, that issue of timing also can upgrade a minor issue into a more serious issue. And in the reverse, the serious issue can become more minor the more time passes. So if there's an issue that you're dealing with right now, that may be a consideration and whether you want to apply to law school this year or if you want to give it a year or two to put it further in the past before you apply to law school. Okay, but now now let's step from serious to disqualifying. We, we've mentioned a couple DQ issues. So, okay, so up to this point, if this was a soccer match, there's a difference between the referee coming up to someone who's committed a foul and telling them, hey, stop that. Then there's the next step, which is you get shown a, a yellow card. But now we're talking about being shown a red card. You're thrown off the field. Don't even bother. What are going to be some of those issues? So I'm wondering... 
First, what are the types of issues that are perceived as disqualifying, regardless of how long ago they may have happened? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it's fair to say that different law schools will react differently to the same set of facts. And so that's probably a little bit helpful for students who might have something serious on their record because it they'll they might get a very different read from one school to another so and from one state to another depending on what the what the state law says too. I think kind of I went into the disqualifying when I was talking earlier but I think a pattern a pattern can be disqualifying if that pattern is already somewhat of a serious nature and then now that pattern throws it from serious to disqualifying. That could be four DUIs, that could be several plagiarism allegations. So things that maybe if you had them one time wouldn't be a problem, but the pattern itself makes it disqualifying. I think violence, depending on the circumstances, can be disqualifying in one in one go or not. I mean, I do remember a, a, a one when I was at UVA, such a great candidate, former military, just wonderful guy, seemed like, did have one violence allegation. And won't go into too much detail, but you know, I felt for that guy, and for me, that wasn't disqualifying. I don't remember ultimately what the what the committee did or said on that one. But so, yeah, I think it's very contextual. But but a pattern, violence, anything like you know, in the, in the good old days, we would call moral turpitude, right? Like you're just showing bad judgment, and you are and or flouting the law. Not minor, even speeding tickets, I think you can get away with a few more of those, especially, you know, you feel for these adults who who apply to law school. Of course, in 15 years of driving, you're probably going to have a little bit of a pattern, meaning three. But if you had three, you know, last year, that, that again, is a little bit different. Whether that's disqualifying, probably not. Anyway, so the, the point being, there's not a black and white line here, necessarily. Convicted of a felony, maybe that's a bright line rule. I don't know. But it's more... It tends to be more contextual. Jake, anything to add there? Well, and, and again, I think that it also depends on some of the issues we've already spoken about, which is pattern, timing, how recently, how far, how far back, but also have you changed your character? What's the tone with which you approach this? Have you shown that that is no longer the kind of person you are? Are you taking responsibility for matters? And, and you know, I, th I think we're going to jump in a little bit into a section of some of character and fitness stories, both for the purposes of illustration as well as titillation. But in the interest of this category, disqualification, I once attended a, a plenary talk at LSAC's annual meeting, which was given by a professor at Georgetown Law who had been his legal education began when he was in jail, I believe, for bank robbery. So I think we can all sitting here and in, in this recording, this podcast, as well as our audience at home can say, yeah, bank robbery seems like one of those immediate disqualification issues and being convicted for that, too. But, you know, he was young. He was stupid. He saw the light. He changed his ways and in jail, became the model citizen and also became the jailhouse lawyer. So he was the guy who started doing his own research in the library about different codes and cases and would assist his fellow inmates in effectively what at a law school we would call innocence project or exoneration project issues. So then he was released early for, you know, good behavior and, and serving his debt to society. And when he was released, he applied to law school and he got into many great law schools and I believe eventually went to Georgetown for law school before then graduating and becoming a faculty member. So the issue bank robbery is 
disqualifying, but it can be then brought back down into a lesser issue with whatever happens afterwards. Responsibility, how far in the background it is, etc. Okay, so on that note, you know, speaking of how these we've we've defined the academic and the criminal issues, we've defined there, there are a couple categories, there's minor, serious, there's disqualifying. We've kind of danced around this a little bit, but what impact can these issues have on an admissions decision? And again, I think here this is even contextual because are we talking about a student whose statistics are pretty high up there, who are kind of in the middle, who are down low? You know, Brigitte, from your experience, how would you treat those students that had a great academic profile and had more than a few character and fitness issues? Again, not just the one underage alcohol citation, but had three and one was this past football season when the football team wasn't even that good. So what are you what are you doing tailgating? Oh, gosh, I think that's such a hard, hard thing to answer in in, in a vacuum, right? Because I do think the context matters of those specific acts and then the context of the entire application matters. And then, you know, the, the, the actual hard numbers of the, of the LSAT and the GPA matter. So it's a hard thing to say in a vacuum. However, I do think, oh, the other interesting thing kind of related to that was in the olden days, and maybe still in some places, people were, ha- had marijuana charges. How do you treat old citations? I mean, that's a live issue in the law, right? And in legal reform and what should be held against someone if it's now legal or is legal somewhere, et cetera, et cetera. So I think similarly, those things might in certain cases be treated now more like a beer in the dorm or a minor in possession. But now I've lost track of your question. The, the impact these have on admissions decisions, potentially. It can be a bummer. I mean, some of these things, we, we call it disqualifying for a reason, because it actually disqualifies you from being admitted. Sometimes just because it really calls into question your judgment. And, you know, we've got other folks to, to admit who don't have those, those issues. But just like we talked about, and you, you just mentioned, you know, with a poor GPA, for example, it, when you have distance from that, you've proven yourself otherwise, you might be able to overcome a low GPA. Same thing here. There's distance from this. You've, you've shown that you understand what you did wrong. You're not doing that kind of thing anymore. You've become a different person, et cetera, et cetera. You know, but the addicts is the same thing. If, if someone's an addict, that's probably not the best moment to go to law school. But if you've managed to overcome that and and be healthy and help others, that becomes really strong. So I have to I have to push back a little on that just because contextually it's just so important what's going on around it. Totally. And not just the context of the actual application, which I think you really did a great job in providing some in illuminating that, but also the context of the applicant pool too. So, and you, you mentioned this briefly that, you know, if, if there are enough of these issues and if the rest of the file isn't strong enough, we have all these other candidates over here. Well, I mean, my career in admissions was such that I was in I was there for some of the bumper crop seasons as far as the number of applications, and I was there during some of the record drought season two. And so in those years when the applicant pool isn't as competitive, but you still need to enroll that class and you're getting pressure to still hit your numbers for LSAT and GPA, okay, well, let me bring this one to my admissions committee, to my faculty committee, where in the years when applications are up 20%, you don't need to bring that issue to your faculty committee because we have all these other candidates who can fill the same statistical need, but don't have those kinds of questions. So it's not just the context of the application. It's also the context of the rest of the applications, too, which I think sometimes our audience, when we're talking with students, they know their application better than anyone. They know it inside and out, right? They know their tree, but they've never seen the rest of the forest. So sometimes it can be very, I don't know, eye-opening for them to understand that a lot of the decisions that admissions offices make are not necessarily 
necessarily about you. It's just about everyone else and it being a really strong and competitive pool. Well, okay. Now, with that said, hey, Aaron, I want to kick this next question over to you. Let's move into some general suggestions and rules of thumb for how to approach these character and fitness questions and their disclosures. So as a writing consultant, what are some of the things that you always advise the students that you work with on how to approach these statements? So this partly depends on the nature of the issue that they're disclosing. First of all, I always say, err on the side of disclosing. You know, if you have a question about whether you should disclose it, disclose it. The consequences of not doing that are much greater than the potential liability of of doing it. There are these different categories. So if the issue is minor, if you have two speeding tickets and they were a couple years ago, you don't need to write a paragraph of apology. You know, it doesn't need to be a meditation on like the nature of that offense. It can just be on this date, I got this speeding ticket. And one year later, I got that speeding ticket. And on both occasions, I promptly paid the fine, period. You know, you're not, you're not required to express contrition. And if you do too much of that, it will seem weird because we've all, we all have speeding tickets. Once time I, I, I was, <laughs> actually, I shouldn't share this. I don't know. When I was 18, I guess, I was like driving to the mall in a minivan, as it was. But 18-year-olds driving driving minivans, that's actually a problem. They're typically up to no good. <laughs> and I turned out to be tailgating an off-duty cop. And then my friend turned on the hazard lights in the car. And I was kind of, you know, so they set up a roadblock and stopped me. So anyway, th- but that was a long time ago, you know. Now I'm buying a minivan for the right reasons. But anyway, so so minor issues, you just give the facts, you're succinct, you don't treat it as an essay. When the, when the issue becomes more serious, when it's potentially disqualifying, then the way that you frame it becomes very significant because the way that you frame it is the other tools. It's the thing that you can control, right? You can't control how long ago something happened, but you can't control what you say about it. So I can't give too many details, but I, I once had a consultation with a client. We didn't end up working with this person, but they had been incarcerated for what I considered to be a very bad crime, you know. And part of the reason I felt that way was that the way that this person was describing it was not just, it wasn't just that they were not contrite. It was that they were, you know, even sort of using language associated with, you know, criminal justice reform movements. So they were saying that they were justice impacted, which is true, I suppose, it's sort of like strict literal sense, but that is not at all what people mean when they say that. So they presented this experience as something that was very, valuable because it gave them a perspective that other people weren't going to have. There was, and, and there was no apology. There was no context. There was no nothing. The issue actually was pretty deep in the past, but the way that they framed it was absolutely odious. Then I have, you know, uh, other experiences with people who are, there was an issue when they were young, maybe, but it was a very serious issue. Something like, you know, a DUI where someone gets hurt. In that context, you need to do the same thing as you do with the minor offense. You need to explain where and when it happened, the disposition of the case, all that, all that stuff. But then you do need to explain what it meant to you, what you've done since. I would say almost in a, in a majority of those cases, that experience is formative in some way. It may, it's probably relevant to the decision to pursue a legal degree. I'm thinking of one example where the, the student got involved in public service First, first he was, I, I guess it was a court requirement. So he had a, like a year of community service, but he, he kept doing it and he, he, he made a career out of public service. And he's, of, of all the students I've worked with, one of the most impressive, admirable people because of what he made of that experience. And although this accident he was involved in was, was very serious, the way that he presented it was so was so credible, was was so heartfelt, and, and he was able to point to the resume to say, look what I've done since. And so it wasn't, it wasn't disqualifying. And those are the kind of two poles. Just want to jump in on, on tone issues as well, guys, that, you know, I think it's important to be contrite if it's something a little more serious than a speeding ticket, but there's no need to self-flagellate. 
sometimes you'll get the you'll get the student who just wants to go on and on about you know sorrow and you know regret and you really don't have to do that you just need to credibly say you know maybe what you learned from the experience and that you haven't had issues since then but you really don't have to self-flagellate on the other side don't make light of a situation i've had folks try to use humor or try to you know cast doubt on even having been accused of the offense i think those things don't come off really well that comes off as you making excuses rather than just you know, stating the facts. Right. Well, and on that note, as a society, or I shouldn't perhaps have have that blanket of an introduction, I feel that it's fairly common when driving to drive several miles over the speed limit, that that seems to be the norm. However, I also understand that while it's highly unlikely that a police officer will pull me over for going 45 in a 40 zone, theoretically, by going over that speed limit, I have opened myself up to that possibility. And I accept that. So approach the issue, like you were saying, Brigitte, with there's nothing, no reason to be snide about matters or joking or dismissive about matters. If you broke the rules, you broke the rules. And, you know, let, let's just acknowledge matters and hopefully move on. But but on that note, I feel like as far as general rules of thumb, one common question we get is, is it better to over-disclose or to under-disclose? And what is your thought on that, both as an admissions consultant as well as a lawyer? Yeah, I, I think it's important to disclose. When in doubt, disclose as long as it fits in the school's instructions. If they say, you know, like I said at the beginning, if it's expunged, don't include it, don't include it. But don't kind of quibble with the prompt other than that. So yeah, disclose if you think you should. Also, if you're really in doubt, ask the admissions office and they'll say, yeah, we believe that falls under our prompt or not. We've had several students do that. In terms of, of how to write this thing, like we said, because every school is a little bit different and your facts are obviously unique, we recommend writing one master draft of your character and fitness essay that kind of covers all the issues. Then when you're comparing it to the prompt, you maybe you can take out a few lines or you don't have to, you know, disclose the parking, the, the, the speeding tickets, or maybe you don't even have to ex disclose the charge because it was there was never a conviction, or you don't have to disclose the misdemeanor or whatever it is, you can delete that, but do your one master draft so you have that to work from. I want to add one note about that. Yeah, I, I want to say that the admissions officers are looking at the form first. So they're looking at whether you've responded yes or no to certain CNF questions on the form. And then if you've said yes, they may flip right to the addendum. And for people who have more than one thing to disclose, I think it's important to make it easy for the admissions officer to, to find what they're looking for. So sometimes maybe there's, there's three things that need to be disclosed, and that can be on the same document, but you can use bold headings or something to point to each CNF question. You might even just refer to the number of the question and that way it's just clear for them. And I've, I think it's also okay for those to overlap sometimes. I mean, this is, it's not an essay, you know, repetition is not necessarily a problem. You just need to have the proper answer to each question as, as required in a place where it's easy to find them. And another common question we get from the students we work with, and, and this is down the road, this is down the road, because as we're working with them, if they have matters to disclose, we, we work with them on that question. But then sometimes they remember something 
at a later time after they've submitted their application. So the question is, oh, geez, what do I do if I forgot? So just as a quick note, every school's application on both the character and fitness section, as well as there's going to be a sign-off at the end of the application. And that sign-off will effectively be a statement affirming that you have been truthful, forthright, etc., in the information that you've presented on your application. And in both the character and fitness section, as well as that sign-off, there's probably going to be language that says that you have a continuing obligation to report information to the Office of Admissions, whether that be about character and fitness issues, whether that be about if you're a current a current student, your final transcripts, things of that nature. So if you forgot to disclose something, the proper course of action is to contact the relevant offices of admission to provide them with that updated information. And in most cases, it's not going to be the end of the world because most of the, of the character and fitness issues we run into are fall into that minor category of underage alcohol possession, speeding tickets, etc. So I wouldn't be overly concerned. I, I think there can be some concerns if the thing that you forgot is a seemingly big thing. So because admissions offices may wonder, how could you? I understand you forgot a speeding ticket from five years ago. It was minor issue. You paid your fine. You, you walked on. You forgot that ass, that assault accusation where it actually went before a judge before being dismissed. I don't know. That seems like a pretty big thing to forget. So when in doubt, be in touch with the admissions office. Explain the nature of matters. Be very forthright. But remember, at the end of the day, you have a continuing obligation to report, and the worst case scenario is that you don't update your file. You graduate from law school, and when the state bar does a criminal background check on you as you're preparing for, for the bar exam, they find that issue. They will contact the admissions office at that school and ask, hey, were you all aware of this issue? And if not, would you have still admitted them? if you were aware of this issue. So it's better to take care of this on the front end rather than four or five years down the road when you're sitting for that bar exam, okay? But now on that note, so we don't want to leave people with being too scared of matters. So, and we've been promising various titillation as well as illumination. So I think now, and we've been sharing some stories along the way, but I think it'd be good for us to share, I mean, fun is, is a subjective term, but perhaps successful stories. So for example, this year, I worked with one student where she had a seemingly significant character and fitness issue that in her initial explanation to us was very brief. I was arrested for assault. I spent time in prison. And, and that was basically it. Now, in further discussion and you know, planning, more de relevant details came out that it was she was in a domestic, an abusive relationship. There was a, several issues of domestic violence against her where she would call the police and the police would never arrive. And the one time that the police actually arrived was the one time that she fought back. So the police arrested her and not her partner. So she was arrested. She did spend time in prison for that issue. But now here's where we, you know, the success story comes into play. She turned her life around. She went back to school. She worked her way through school. So while waitressing, she did very well academically. She started working at a law firm. She did well in the LSAT, had no further criminal issues or character and fitness issues. And she was a highly successful applicant this year to, to many T14 schools. So I'll, I'll leave exact names out of it to, to protect anonymity a little bit there. But this is certainly one of those issues that, again, on the surface, this seems like a pretty easy disqualifying issue. Assault and going to prison. 
that's not good. But once you actually start talking about the context of matters and what you've done since then, that changes the game entirely. So that's more of a heartwarming success story. Brigitte and Aaron, do you, do you all have any of, of those examples before we talk more about silly issues that you probably shouldn't have done one way or another? Well, I want to I want to know it's it's absolutely infuriating how often I work with students who women who are arrested for domestic violence in a situation exactly like that. I can think of two in the last two years who there's like a, a pattern of abuse that the husband is abusing them. They call the police and the police take the woman away to jail. Aaron, it's almost like this country has had centuries of issues related to gender <laughs> violence, Stre stretching from Salem to the present. I don't know if you're aware of those, if you've ever read an article or a book about those, but if not, you know, go to your it's local library, I hearing. suppose. It's the first I'm hearing and I'm outraged. Salem, what? <laughs> Salem, no. <laughs> No, it's horrible. It's just horrible. And I mean, happily, both of the students that I'm thinking of, they were able to get away from these men, the, the legal issue that they were involved in. I think there was one conviction, actually, but in any case, it didn't have any impact on the eventual admissions decisions. And both of these people are at grade schools. But what, what's especially horrible is that they, you know, when they when they come to us, they seem to feel like they are partially to blame or something, you know, like they, they try to say, oh, well, I feel bad for my part in it when there's there's simply no way to tell the story that presents them in any in any kind of like a you know they're, they're not the perpetrator yeah exactly this is the classic stealing a loaf of bread to feed your family issue but those are the issues that i think we can all look at and say there's a lot of context here we understand you can't help but understand the student side of things and, and they become successful applicants. On the flip side of that are the students who one time, so we mentioned, Brigida, that you brought up marijuana offenses, cannabis offenses, and we're, we're in a brave new world with those issues. And it depends on what part of the country you're in. And so, for example, I live in Indiana on the border with Michigan. Michigan has legalized marijuana. Indiana has not. So theoretically, it's not just an issue of where were you when you purchased marijuana or use marijuana? Did you cross state lines to do that? I mean, but there are other ones where you have to look at and say, no, you kid, you shouldn't have done that. So there was the student one time who had, he admittedly had a drug problem and not minor, or I shouldn't say minor drugs, but hard drugs. And his residential advisor was pretty sure there was an issue happening. And so the student decided to prank his RA by faking that he was effectively running a cocaine operation out of his dorm room. So including baby baking powder, baking soda, scales, razor blades, mirror, the whole thing. And so the RA came in for an inspection, saw this and said, I got to tell ResLife because you're clearly running a drug operation here. And the kid said, ha ha, that's fake. That's not where my drugs are. The drugs are over there. Because he was so, so proud of himself for pulling off such an elaborate hoax that he forgot. You shouldn't tell where the actual drugs are. And it was a significant amount of drugs and not just marijuana. So shockingly, he was expelled and he had to disclose those character and fitness issues. And they, and they were relatively recent too. So not five years years in the past. And I can't believe I was that silly and ridiculous as a 18 or 19 year old. I am now 22. And I did that as a 21 year old. That's problematic. Any, any, anyone listening out there? Don't do don't do that. Don't do that. Yeah, don't do that. You just look like a jerk when you're pranking somebody on something that's, you know, actually against the law. So whether we think it should be against the law or shouldn't be, it is and don't make light of it and certainly don't make light of it in your in your character and fitness issue. You know, one of the most uh, kind of the, the the flip side of what we were talking about, about the domestic violence victim being being charged is what I've seen a few times recently where 
a young boy is accused of sexual harassment or something like that. And that is very much a serious charge, right? And even there, sometimes the context is really, really important. I, you know, I, I, I'm just remembering one where I think the boy slapped his girlfriend on the behind or something, and then she was no longer his girlfriend, and then, she, you know, she accused him. Those are very, very difficult situations because one, you know, we as the listener of that or reader of that, we can't help but be pained by that, right? Like who, someone's not telling the truth. Who's not telling the truth? We don't want to disbelieve the victim, right? Because there's been way too much of that. At the same time, we also know that there are moments in which allegations are a little bit complex and maybe not 100% true either. So those are, I think, very, very tough. And I'm sorry, I think you asked for fun stories. Definitely not a fun story. Sorry about that. But these <laughs> these are the ones. Yeah. Okay. That's, okay. That's okay. I think for me, plagiarism and then anything about allegations on sexuality are just really, really hard and painful to deal with. And yet you have to. I'll end with this lighter one. So the students who's reading applications for students who graduated from BYU, who had disclosed offenses on the student code, which included things such as caffeine, that no, that that's, I mean, if you went to BYU, I, I certainly imagine that you understood the student code of ethics prior to enrollment. On the other hand, actually, as a law admissions officer, I support the use of coffee because it's probably how the majority of students get through law school. So that will not keep you from being admitted to any school out there. So hopefully we can assure our, our fine readers of that or fine listeners of that. Excuse me. If you're reading this podcast, that's a whole other issue. <laughs> that the, the transcript is very problematic. Yeah. E even with a pattern of caffeine abuse is even okay. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Just just don't don't be running a caffeine lab out of your, your dorm room by any stretch of the imagination. Okay. Well, hey, Thank you, Brigitte and Aaron, and, and we hope that you all out there enjoy this discussion about character and fitness issues. And as far as general examples of, of ways to approach this, you may also want to check out our admissions course on the Seven Sage website, where we do provide some tips and advice and examples of how to approach these types of statements. Please remember to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform and join us next time as we keep diving into the ins and outs of applying to law school on the Seven Sage Admissions Podcast. Thanks for listening to this episode of How to Get into Law School, a Seven Sage podcast. Please subscribe on your favorite podcast platforms. If you're interested in more help and guidance for getting into law school, also check out our website at sevensage.com. That's the number seven, S-A-G-E.com. You can learn more about our LSAT course and tutoring, as well as the work that our professional admissions and writing consultants can do to help you with your applications. You can even schedule a free consultation with our LSAT tutors and with our admissions consultants.